Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good, good, good. Great. Somebody's really great. Somebody's just meh. But I'm glad you're here nonetheless. Thank you for being here. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, a really good app is version. Every translation of the Bible you could ever ask for is on that, as well as um, if you search for live events, everything we're going to talk about, the notes, all the verses we're going to read are going to be on there. Today we are in Philippians chapter 4, which is the last chapter of the book of Philippians. And, and man, I've just enjoyed this book of the Bible so much. I've enjoyed what God has said through it so much. And uh, if you haven't been with us, what we've talked about in the past three weeks or so is that the book of Philippians is actually a letter written by the apostle Paul to a church in a place called Philippi. So Paul wrote this letter to this church while he's under house arrest. And while he's under house arrest, he's writing to these guys. And in chapter one, he says right out of the gate that joy, peace, and contentment is internal. This is a guy in prison writing that joy, peace, and contentment is something that happens on the inside of us. It's not determined by our circumstances. It's not determined by what's going on around us. And then he would kind of change gears in chapter two and say that a healthy relationship with God will result in healthy relationships with others. And it result in something called the mind of Christ, where we think like Jesus, where we're humble like Jesus, where we're selfless like Jesus, where we're obedient to God's word like Jesus. And in the last week, what we saw in chapter three is that right standing with God, being made right before God and having peace with God is not found in anything that you and I can do. It's found only through faith in Jesus Christ. And true spiritual maturity is humility. True spiritual maturity says, I've got a long way I need to go. I have not yet arrived. And true spiritual maturity is being active and striving to know more of Christ. And so today, as we look at the last part of this letter that he writes to this church, what we're going to see is that he says this, that believers, people that believe in Jesus and have been transformed by the Spirit of God, that we are to rejoice always. That we're to keep that mindset, we're to keep that in our spirit, that, that we're to fight a battle for peace and contentment. Sometimes we don't like language like that, fighting battles for peace and contentment. We think peace and contentment is just something that happens by default, but no, everything going on in this world and the enemy of this world is after your joy and after your peace and after contentment. And what Paul is going to say is that we have a battle to fight for peace, joy, and contentment, and that is fought through prayer. That's fought through unity in relationships. That sometimes we have to step up to the plate and make relationships right that have conflict and drama and contention. That that is a battle that we have to fight. And then sound thought life. That, that we have to fight the battle for right thinking that aligns with the truth of God's word. And Paul says as we do this, as we fight this battle, as we, we own up to what our responsibility is, we experience freedom. We experience joy, and that freedom is manifested in genuine peace in the innermost part of our being, and it's manifested in radical generosity, how we treat the people around us, what we're willing to give to the people around us. And so this is where we find ourselves in this last part of the book of Philippians. Man, I am, I am just, if I don't tell you guys this enough, I am so grateful for this church. I just want to say thank you guys for just how encouraging you guys are to, to me and to Corey and the staff and and. Man, we are so blessed to be able to do this. We're so blessed to be able to do this. A couple years ago, I told this at the nine, there was a, um, um, a guy that came into our church and he was from Egypt and he was an Egyptian Christian. 
and we were reading the Bible together and praying together, and he came up at the end of service, and he just was just flabbergasted. He said, I'm so grateful to be here. He said, do you know how difficult it is to be a Christian in Egypt? He said, last Christmas, there were Christians leaving Christmas services, and there were people that were waiting to shoot them as they were making their way from church back to their homes, and the police just turned their head and acted like it wasn't happening. He says, you guys have no idea how good you have it here. <laughs> and man, a lot of times we don't think about that. We think, do I have to go to church? We don't ever think about it. I get to go to church. I get to gather with other believers and open the Bible and pray and worship together. And man, that's a blessing. That's a gift. And if we haven't said thank you to God for that, let's start by this morning thanking him for that. Amen. So let's bow our heads. Let's thank him for that and invite his presence in this room. Lord, if we've never said thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather together without fear of our lives, Lord, we, we say thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for, for music. <laughs> thank you that we have a, a, a building to meet in. Thank you that we have seats to sit in. Thank you that we have people that love us enough to watch our kids so we can be here and study your word together. Thank you we have coffee to drink. Thank you, Lord, that if our biggest problems are that, that our car isn't new enough, we've got it pretty good with most of the world living on less than a dollar a day. We are more than blessed. And so right now, God, we just look to you and we just say thank you. God, we ask that you would keep your hand on us as we study your word. Your word is living and alive and active. And we ask, God, that it would just speak to our hearts today and you'd reveal to us the things in our lives that we need to bring under surrender and submission to God. And we invite your Holy Spirit to do that. No matter how painful that may be, God, I ask right now that you would speak to me. You'd speak to my heart. Change me, God. Change me. I lay it down. I lay down my pride. I want to say yes to you no matter what you speak. Lord, we ask you to keep your hand on every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee that's having service this morning. Keep your hand on their pastors. Keep your hand on those congregations. If they're preaching Christ and Christ crucified, we ask that you cause them to grow and you'd unite your church. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Christian friendship, Paul would talk about this in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he kind of returns to this in the last part of his letter. Christian friendship is a gift. It strengthens us. It brings us joy. But that only comes when we're committed to unity. So Paul addresses this church in very familial terms. He calls them his brothers and his sisters. He says, I long for you guys. You guys are my crown and my joy. I miss you guys. I want to be with you guys. But Paul loves them so much that he is willing to fight for them. And so he brings up what was probably a controversial topic in the church of Philippi, something that he just mentions these two names and everybody that was listening to this letter being read probably said, oh, we know what he's talking about. He addresses a very specific situation. It was between two women, a disagreement between two women. These women's names were Euodia and Syntyche. Now, I have studied all week on the right pronunciation of Euodia and Syntyche. 
If you have a different pronunciation and I'm saying it completely wrong, you are more than welcome to come and enlighten me at the end of service. I wish their names were like Emily and Samantha. That'd be a lot easier. <laughs> but we will call them E-N-S, Eodia and Sintiki, or Emily, Samantha, whatever. But these ladies were not getting along at any rate. This could have been why he wrote in chapter 2 about relationships. And he talked about being selfless and, and not being prideful and not doing anything out of selfish ambition. We don't know. But at any rate, Paul is not taking sides. He's not gossiping, but he's not being passive either. He's addressing this problem head on in a mature and Christ-like manner. Now the question comes as we read this, well, what were they fighting about? Well, the text doesn't really say, and even if it did say, I don't know if that would really help us a lot because we'd be able to say, well, as long as I don't do that, I'm fine. I think it's purposely vague because what we know about these ladies is, is Paul says that they, their names were written in the book of life. They were true believers he said they were fellow laborers in the gospel, that they, they were most likely leaders in the church. So what does that tell us? That even the most mature, godly individuals can find themselves at times engaged in petty squabbles and disagreements. James chapter 4 identifies the root cause of all conflict, of all fighting, as selfishness. James says, what is it that's causing contention amongst you guys? What, what is it? He says, is it not those passions that are raging inside of you, your selfish desires, your selfish ambition? And so what that means is anybody in this room, no matter how spiritually mature we may think we are, how long we've been walking with the Lord, we are prone in any given moment to give in to our selfish nature or to give in to our pride. And so Paul addresses the situation and he appeals to the members of this church to help these women. There's no entering into the drama. There's no choosing sides. There's no slandering. There's only strong, urgent, logical, and mature language that insists that these women are helped and this matter is put behind them. So this is what we see modeled for us as an example and a model for how to solve conflict within the church. This is what this is included in the scriptures for. Now, unfortunately, the world has a different model. And unfortunately, some of us, we probably never admit it, but some of us actually enjoy drama and conflict. We say we don't, but the reality is we, we kind of do. And our relationships attest to that, that drama kind of follows us wherever we go. We got drama in the family, drama in the workplace, drama in our friendships, drama everywhere we go. And for some of us, what drama provides us with is an exaggerated sense of importance. But we like telling people, well, I just put so-and-so in their place. My words hold that much weight. I am that smart. I am that good at just calling them out on the carpet and saying, that's what's wrong with you and 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 you. So it gives us this exaggerated sense of importance that we have a front row seat to everybody else's problems. And for some of us, it gives us a distraction from focusing on our lives. If I can figure out what's going on with everybody else and why well, these people aren't getting along or these people, that, that I don't have to look at me and my own selfishness and the things that I'm doing wrong, I can just look at what everybody else is doing wrong. For, for some of us, it's just something exciting and sensational to think and talk about. That we're kind of bored, and so we like drama. We like conflict. That we like watching soap operas, and we like even more real-life soap operas that we read about in gossip magazines. That's fun, which is interesting because the Scriptures say that gossip is a sin, but yet we have magazines devoted to Anyway, interesting to me. For still others of us, it provides us with a sense of identity. We like to think of ourselves as a victim. We like to think of ourselves as that everybody else is out to get us, and it's just little old poor me, and the world's coming after me, and I did nothing, and it's just... 
For others of us, we, we like the, the identity of the fixer. I'm fixing everybody. I'm telling everybody what's up. I'm putting everybody in the place. And this is the world's model of conflict and drama. This is what the world tells you you are to do. Now, Scripture gives us a very different story. Scripture would say that even though disagreements and conflicts happen, it's all throughout the New Testament, we as followers of Jesus Christ are to work to resolve them quickly and lovingly. That drama, that quarreling, that contention should have no place in the church. It should have no place in Christian relationships. They should have no place in a Christian household. Because God is the author of peace. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14. And as his children, I love this. One of, the, one of the things that Jesus gave us that we would know that we are children of God is that we are peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. I said this a couple weeks ago. There's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. And a peacemaker is somebody that tends to be passive. And I don't want to confront anybody. I don't want to, I just want, I'll, I'll talk about them and I'll talk about the situation. I'm just keeping the peace. But at the end of the day, they don't love people enough to have people not like them. So they're not really peacemakers, they're just peacekeepers. Peacemakers are willing to have tough conversations and willing to be a Paul and say, hey, let's fix this, help these women, let's move on. This is an interesting scripture that we don't talk a lot about. In Proverbs 6, the person that wrote this listed seven things that the Lord hates. We've heard of the list of seven deadly sins, and we've kind of made up a couple, but if you ever really want to know what God hates, here's the list, Proverbs 6. Among this list is hands that shed innocent blood, proud eyes, a lying tongue, and then this one right at the end of the list, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God says, I look at that. And I hate that. I hate that. So lest we point the finger at other sins and act as though they're worse than our own, if we are guilty of stirring up conflict, or the King, King Jameseth is he who stirs up discord among the brethren. If you like that better, then go for that one. But this is what God says about this. Now, Jesus did not leave us silent and leave us without a model to follow when it comes to biblical conflict resolution. That it will happen. You will come to a place in other believers, even those people that love Jesus, that you will not see eye to eye with them and you might get your feelings hurt or you might be disappointed or they might say something to hurt you. But Jesus gave us a model for how to resolve it. In Matthew 7 and in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 7, the first thing that Jesus says is that you have to check yourself first. You have to evaluate your part in the conflict. Before you do anything, you've got to come to your own heart and you've got to ask God, God, what is it in my heart and my life that is causing this thing to go on? Jesus said it this way. You cannot see clearly the speck in your brother's eye if there's a big honking log in the middle of your eye. When there is darkness and junk in our own heart, we will not be able to see clearly that thing that our brother or sister needs to fix in their lives. And so Jesus says, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> that was stupid. I don't know why I said that. Okay. The second thing he says in Matthew 18 is go to the individual. Go to the individual first to voice your concern, to sit down with them and talk about what's going on. Notice he doesn't say go have a venting session with all your friends that don't involve the situation. You know what that is, right? The venting session, that's Christianese for gossip, but we don't want to call it gossip, so we'll call it venting. Right? 
So Jesus says, go to that person and voice your concern. That a good way to address a situation that's, that's, that's tense is not to sit there and say, you did this and you did this and you did this and I know why you did this. You did this because this, 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 and this. But a good thing is to sit down and say, hey, this happened. This is how I feel. Help me understand. Help me understand, like, what, what's going on? I love you more than I love being right. I, I love you and I want your friendship and I want our relationship more than I want to win this argument. Help me understand. And Jesus is a realist. He, he, he knows that sometimes resolutions don't get reached that easily. So Jesus says if a resolution isn't reached, involve other godly, wise believers to mediate in a second conversation. This is not you going and rounding up a posse and you guys getting your pitchforks and your torches and, oh, let's get them, right? This is neutral third party, other believers that love you both and are willing to call you out if you're being sinful and selfish just as much as they're willing to call the other person out if they're being sinful and selfish. And Jesus says in the last part of this teaching that if a resolution still can't be reached, it might be time to cut ties with that person. The language Jesus used is you bring them before the church and you treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile, meaning that you don't need that person in your life in that moment and they probably don't need you. And so this is what Jesus tells us with conflict resolution. And many times we follow models given to us by the world, not by what the scriptures tell us. And then we wonder why our relationships are in a wreck and why we have no peace. But I, I think that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I think preventing conflict is equally as important as solving conflict. And I think the best way to prevent conflict is to walk in maturity. Understanding that other people's opinions of you don't define you because you've received your identity from Christ. That when we listen to other people's needs and perspectives and don't simply see them as an extension of ourselves and that this is our world and everybody else is living in it, but they have needs, they have perspectives, they have things that they're working through that prevents us from responding in a way of selfishness and a way of, of hurtful communication. That, that We don't assume that we know that other person's motives or intentions. If they did something to hurt or disappoint us, we don't assume that the reason they did that was because they're just awful at the core. That maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe they're hurting with something else. And then ultimately, it all boils down to this. You have a choice whether you're going to be offended. You do not have a choice whether you're going to be hurt or disappointed. You will be hurt or disappointed. If you have any relationship with any human being ever, anywhere on the face of the earth, they will hurt you, they will disappoint you. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You have a choice whether you can forgive that person unconditionally and love them, or you can hang on to that and turn that into an offense and let that fester and let that affect everything about your life and your relationship with God and your relationship with everyone else. But ultimately, that comes down to your choice. You guys still with me? Okay. I didn't think it would hurt that bad this morning, but we're, we're going. Here we go. Verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness excuse me, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, 
If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so sometimes peace and contentment have to be fought for. And for the believers, the battlefield that we fight is in our minds and our affections, what we feel and what we think. But you and I are not victims of circumstance. Every person in this room, no matter who you are, has your own unique set of trials, troubles, and sufferings that God has called you to walk down that you will suffer if you're attempting to live a life for Jesus. And Paul gives the Philippian Christians a set of strategies, a battle plan to fight for joy in the midst of real life and real suffering and everything that happens to all of us. And he says the first thing is this. Let your reasonableness, or another translation I like better is, let your gentleness be known to everyone. That the first and probably most important and most practical and easiest way to have joy is to be gentle, kind, and gracious to other people. And when somebody cuts us off in traffic, we don't fly off the handle. We don't get mad because our server took a little bit longer, that we're not short with people and unforgiving with people. We're kind and we're gracious with people because that actually leads to us having peace and us having joy. Now, this is the ability to go beyond what is expected and how we treat the people around us. And Paul says the Lord is near, that God is coming soon to judge our words, judge our thoughts, and to judge our deeds but the scriptures say that every believer will give an account for every word that we have spoken in this life. That's sobering. But he's also near to us now to provide us with his love. So you think, man, I can't be gracious. I've got nothing to give to these people. Paul says, God is near. You have an infinite surplus of love and forgiveness and grace that you can give to the people around you. The Lord is near. And he says, don't be anxious about anything. The anxiety and worry ultimately accomplish nothing. They only drain us of strength. They only drain us of peace in the moment. And often for many of us, worry is simply a lack of faith in the sufficiency and sovereignty and provision of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, man, look at the created order. Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They're not worried about what they're going to have because I take care of them. Don't you think you matter more to me than these guys? So don't worry about tomorrow. Think about today. I've got you. What he's saying is that worry often demonstrates a lack of trust in the sovereignty and the bigness and the sufficiency of God. And Paul says in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. See, the strategy against worry that Paul gives the Philippians is prayer. That worry accomplishes nothing. It really, it really accomplishes nothing. A lot of us think that, I mean, I'm going to care more if I'm just stressed out about it, I'm worried about it, and I think about it all the time. And at the end of the day, it accomplishes absolutely nothing. But prayer accomplishes more than you think. That God listens to us, that God moves into action, that God changes things when we pray. And worry drains us of our strength. 
It robs us of our joy. It robs us of our peace. But prayer, on the other hand, clothes us with strength. It gives us peace. It gives us joy. And so Paul says, no, 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 stop worrying about it. You address it, but you address it with prayer. And he says, let your request be known to God. And no matter how big our needs are, no matter how small our needs are, we are invited to bring those requests to God. And there's freedom in knowing that we're not called to carry everything on our own. You're not called to carry everything on your own. If you're facing a situation that seems hopeless and you seem absolutely helpless in the face of it, here's the good news. You're not called to carry that on your own. You're not designed to carry that on your own. That is too big for you. And there's freedom in saying this is too big for me. And we have a promise that God actually cares about our burdens. I love this verse in 1 Peter. Peter says, cast all of your anxieties on him. Well, God doesn't care about my test next week. I didn't really study for that. He didn't care about that. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Oh, my kids aren't bad kids. I'm just a little bit worried about them. I mean, there's bigger things for God to care about. I can't pray for these needs. Yes, he does. If you're anxious about it, this is what the scriptures say. If you're feeling anxious about it, take those to God. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. He cares about everything you're worried about. He cares about everything you're anxious about. So cast your anxieties on him. And Paul says if you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that the peace of God comes from prayer that involves both asking God for our earthly needs and thanking God in advance for his provision and for his presence. Paul says this surpasses all understanding. This is a peace that cannot be understood in the confines of human language. That your finite mind cannot grasp this peace that produces calmness and wholeness and confidence in the outcome of our lives. That somebody says, man, you're facing this. How are you feeling? You're like, man, I've got peace. What? That doesn't make any sense. You don't know how it's going to turn out. I know. It doesn't make any sense. It surpasses all understanding. And he says, this kind of peace that God gives you will guard your heart and your minds. And I love this. Paul is writing this letter while people from the Roman army are guarding his cell or his house or wherever he's at in his imprisonment. And he looks up and he sees Roman soldiers. And he goes back down to his paper and he writes this, that the word picture he uses is a squad of Roman soldiers standing guard and protecting your thoughts and protecting your emotions from worry and doubt. This is what he's saying. Don't miss this. He's saying that if we take our worries and our doubts to God, instead of letting them fester and letting them grow and letting it be a snowball effect that just kind of gets out of control and we wonder, man, how did I even get here? I'm frantic and it started with something so small. But when we take it to God and take it to God and take it to God, that God starts guarding our thoughts, that his peace starts guarding our emotions, and when those things come in that we have a filter and we understand, no, that doesn't belong. That's a worry. That's a doubt. I'm supposed to take that to God in prayer and that God's going to give us peace to protect us from future fear and worry and doubt. And then Paul says, I want you to think on these things. I want you to think on these things. Paul is saying that our minds have a strong influence on the quality of our lives and that right thinking is the first step towards righteous living. So what is right thinking? Right thinking is thinking that is devoted to that which is good, beautiful, and true 
by the standards of God, not by the standards of culture or not by your own standards or my own standards. The standards of God. You may say, well, what is the standards of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. God gave you his standards in this book. I meet a lot of people that say, man, I'm trying to get into the word, but I read my Bible, I get nothing out of it. I read it for five minutes this morning and I'm still struggling with the same thing. Um, a lot of times we want microwave discipleship instead of crockpot discipleship. You, you see what I'm saying? A lot of times we want to read our Bible and, whoa, man, thanks God. And, and it's more slow drip. It's more slow drip. You don't go to the gym and lift one weight and, man, it's a lifestyle change of eating different and sleeping different, of training different. In the same way, when we renew our minds according to the standards of God's word, it takes a while especially if you've spent 30 years of your life thinking a certain way. So stick with it. Keep going. So he gives us a list of virtues. He says, I want you to think on these things. Think on the things that are true. Think on the things that are true. What is true is that which corresponds with reality. This is not fantasies. This is not delusions. This is not daydreaming. This is not worst-case scenarios. Or we wonder, man, what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, my gosh. Gotta live in fear, gotta live in panic. And he says, nah, think about what's true. There's no time to panic about what could happen. Think about what's true in the moment. Here's what's true for every person right now in this universe. There is a God who reigns and he's on a throne and he's sovereign and nothing happens in your life or in my life apart from his sovereign decree. That is true. You know what else is true? That God is good and that God loves you and that God loves me, and that God is faithful, and that God has called me son. That's what's true. So when we think about what's true, we don't let these fears in our lives appear bigger than that reality. He says, think about what's noble, things that lift up our mind above the world's distractions and scandals and the pettiness of, our, of this world, things that are transcended in beauty and truth. Think about that which is right. What is right is that which is fair to all the parties involved. It's thinking of justice. It's not thinking of impartiality or favoritism or what's just good for me, not the people around me. Think about what is pure. That all sexual immorality, before it comes out through our actions, it first starts in our minds. It starts with a thought. It starts with a thought. Gentlemen, before you open that laptop or you pull out your phone and you look at whatever you're going to look at, before that begins, that first starts with this. It starts with where your eyes go. And Paul says we are to think only of that which leads us away from sin and shame that aligns us with God's truth. Gentlemen, sometimes this means we have to train and discipline our minds to think differently. And that takes work. Especially if you've been told your whole life, you can look, but you can't touch. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If you look long enough, you will touch. He says, think about that which is lovely. Things that attract, things that please, things that win others' admiration and affection. Those things that bring people together in peace and unity. He says, think about that which is admirable. Things that are worthy of praise and approval. Things that anyone would admire. Think about that which is excellent. What is best in every area of your life and the things that you strive for and work and attain, that which is praiseworthy, the best life a person can live and the best reputation a person can have, that you think about what kind of a dad do my kids need to see me as? 
And I know I'm far from that, but man, by God's grace, this is what I'm going to strive for, and this is what I'm going to live for. In that moment of temptation, we think about what's praiseworthy. Man, my kids don't need a dad that's a porn addict. I think about what's praiseworthy, what they need to see, the best reputation that I can have. And then he says, think on these things. Think on these things. Thinking on God's truth and that constant prayer will relieve our worries and lead us to peace. Now, in every service after I've said that, I can always kind of read what's going on in the room. There's some people that go, man, that sounds so easy. Wish it was that easy. You have no idea how hard it is. Listen, I, I, I know this isn't a quick fix. This is not a magic pill. This is not a silver bullet. But this is extremely difficult to do in a moment of worry, especially if you've trained your mind to run the opposite way and to snowball out of control with anxiety and worry. But listen, just because the answer is simple does not mean it is easy. You follow me on that? Like, you don't have to be a dietitian or a personal trainer. If somebody asks, how do you lose weight? You'd probably say, well, you cut down on your caloric intake and you exercise more. You say, well, that sounds simple. Yeah, but is that easy? No, that's not easy. Just because it might be a simple answer does not mean that the implementation of it is easy. That for a lot of us in this room, no, not for a lot of us, for most of us in this room, this will be a lifelong battle that you will be engaged in. But listen to me, you have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and you have communion with God through prayer. So I wanna charge you and challenge you, do not let your peace and your joy be robbed by worry and anxiety. You take up your sword and you take up this battle plan and you fight the battle for peace in your life. And in moments where we wonder, how can I be content where I'm at? I mean, all this stuff is going around. I don't understand how I'm going to be content when I have. Paul says, in whatever situation, I've learned how to be content. He points to his own example as a way of showing that such noble thinking and prayerfulness is possible. He talks about this inner spirit of freedom and this mental discipline that has given him the ability to conquer his circumstances, not to be conquered by his circumstances. That this is the exact opposite of worry. This is the exact opposite of fear. He says, I, I know what it's like to be brought low, and I know what it's like to abound. He speaks from his own experience that he'd seen both extremes that were led to believe that when he was a Pharisee in good standings with the Jewish community, he was most likely a person with some means. He was probably rich, but yet he's writing this letter to the Philippian church in a jail cell with probably nothing to his name but he knew how to weather the dangers of both abundance and poverty. And he speaks of a secret. Now this wasn't a, a, a kind of the Greek and the Roman cults. This wasn't something that the Stoic philosophers would talk about, like, or that book that is kind of a hoax, The Secret. You guys seen that book? But this is not really, that word secret is better translated strategy. A strategy that he has relied on throughout his life. His secret was a radical reliance on Christ. And he says, I can do all things. So Stoic philosophers, this movement in Greek philosophy called Stoicism, had relied on the personal will and the power of the mind to rid them of any earthly pleasures. They wouldn't feel emotions. They put it all out of their mind. They'd focus just on trying to gain contentment through their own personal will. But Paul did not claim such an inner strength. Elsewhere, he would write, no good thing dwells inside of me. I can't look down deep inside of me and find the goodness. There's no goodness. I'm not the 
answer. I'm the problem. And so Paul's strength didn't come from himself. Paul's strength came from Jesus living in him. And because Paul had Christ, nothing the world could throw at him would either entice him or discourage him. Paul said it in chapter one, and he reflects it again as he unpacks what he's saying over and over again, that to live, to truly live, to truly come alive was Christ. And even if he died, that was an upgrade. That was gain. So in moments when I've been crippled and overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and worry, one of the most helpful things is to stop in the midst of that spiral, in the midst of that snowball, and to look back at the situation and ask myself this question. What am I most afraid of? What am I most afraid of? The acronym for fear that maybe some of you heard this growing up in church that seems the most appropriate is that fear is false evidence appearing real. But in the dark, the things that we're afraid of seem a lot bigger than God. But then we start to shine the light of God's word on these things that we feel are bigger than God. We realize they're not as big as we think they are. And God's a whole lot bigger than we ever imagined he was. And so we ask ourselves, what am I afraid of? Are we afraid of abandonment? That at the core of why we're so angry at our kids or so angry at our spouse, we're just afraid of being left alone. We're afraid people will abandon us. They'll just jump ship and get out of here because they don't love us. When the opinion of the one who matters the most matters most to you, you can look at this verse in Hebrews 13 and speak it over your soul and receive peace. When God says that the ruler and the person that reigns over all the universe says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, that gives us peace to know I will never be abandoned. I will never be abandoned. I'll never face abandonment. Are you most afraid of, of rejection? People won't like you. People won't love you. Nobody's going to be your friend anymore. People are going to push away from the table because they saw something in you they didn't like. I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 27. He says, even if my father and mother abandoned me. In Jewish culture, the biggest scorn and shame that you could ever live in was your parents disowning you. Was somebody in your family saying, they're as good as dead to me. But the psalmist says, even if that happens to me, even if they push away and they abandon and they reject me and say, I don't want anything to do with you, the Lord will hold me. He doesn't just hold me, he holds me close. The Bible says he is the father to the fatherless. He is there for the widow and the oppressed, the people that have no one and nothing. This is who God shows up for. Are you most afraid of failure? Most of the men I talk to when we start talking about what are you most afraid of, it all boils down to this. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of disappointing our spouse. We're afraid of blowing it at our job. We still have like the voice of our dad from like six-year-old t-ball team yelling at us in the back of our head and that's playing on repeat as a loop in our brain over and over and over again. And we just think that maybe we can succeed at this or not fail at this, we'll find peace. And so we're so afraid by failure, a lot of times we don't wanna try anything new because we're afraid we'll fail at it. This is why a lot of men still play video games, by the way, I don't know if you knew that or not. Because if they lose, they can just restart it. I love this verse. It says, though he may stumble, this is talking about the righteous man. Though he may stumble, other translations say, though he may trip and fall, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. 
Your ability to fail is not bigger than God's ability to redeem. Even if you do trip, God says, I'm holding onto your hand. You're not going to fall on your face. I'm holding you. You can do this. You're not going to fail. Even if you're afraid of death, Jesus says this, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So when we shine the light of God's word on the things we're most afraid of, what we'll see is that this is so true. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Will you say that together with me? Let's say that as a church. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's say this again. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now close your eyes for a second. In your mind's eye, I want you to picture the thing that you are most afraid of. Maybe this is the thing that keeps you up at night. Maybe this is a situation you don't know what the outcome is going to be. This causes you stress. This causes anxiety. This causes worry. You have no answers when it comes to this situation, and you feel absolutely discouraged and broken and tired. Now, let's say that truth together. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's say it again. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look right at me. You have to get up every morning and tell yourself that truth. You have to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself. You don't have the inner strength inside of you. You have Christ that lives inside of you that strengthens you. And so when you speak to your fears and your doubts, when you believe your beliefs and you doubt your doubts and you believe that God can do all things and that he loves you, and like we were saying earlier, he's for you, not against you. There is no one in this room that believes that should be crippled by doubt and anxiety and fear. We've been given everything we need through the power of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's take up our swords and let's fight this battle for peace and joy and contentment. Let's look at this last part. Paul says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church would enter into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except for you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Sometimes God works through people to meet human needs. But even though Paul was content in his imprisonment, that he had all things he needed, he still had very real needs that God was ready to meet through the Philippian church. And Ephroditus was this leader in the Philippian church that had traveled to Philippi, or traveled to Rome from Philippi, to bring Paul the financial gift that the Philippians had collected on his behalf. And Paul spends the last part of his letter thanking him for it. 
Now Paul is very careful in verse 17 to make sure the Philippians know that his motive for thankfulness is not to secure another gift. This is not a fundraising letter. All he's doing in this letter is encouraging them for their generosity and in, in, in assuring them that God saw their good works and that God would reward their good works abundantly. He says, my God will supply every need that you have. Paul tells us that God will meet our needs if we are willing to trust him by being generous to meet the needs of others. Generosity is a command. That Generosity is a normal part of the Christian life. Now your attitude towards money, this is why the Bible talks so much about it, is an indicator of the spiritual condition of your heart. Jesus said it this way, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. This is why it talks so much about money in the Bible. God knows if he has your heart, he will have your money. And generosity, when we are willing to live open-handedly and give to the people around us who are in need, this is a preemptive strike against the spiritual cancer of worry and anxiety. If you live constantly afraid that you'll never have enough, but then you lift up your eyes and say, wait a second, I've got everything I need through Christ that frees us up to say, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Here, you need it more than I do because I have a God that can provide my needs. God doesn't need your money. He's not short on cash. He's not sitting up in heaven wringing his hands wondering how he's going to pay his bills unless you start tithing. What he needs and what he wants, he doesn't need anything, but what he wants and values from us is our hearts. And a heart that overflows with gratitude to the God who has saved us and given us all things through Christ. If we truly trust God in every area of our life, then we'll give generously. We'll give willingly. We'll give cheerfully. Not so we can get anything from God in return, but rather as a response to everything that God has already given us through the cross. I think that it's harder and harder for Americans to give than almost any other place I've ever been in the world. In places like East Africa and Uganda, most people live on less than a dollar a day. And it was always very humbling to me that every church I would ever speak at, these people would come and, and give like love offerings to singers and musicians and visiting pastors. They would, and they had nothing to give. And they just give because they, they wanted to bless people. And then I come here and we've got more than they could ever wrap their minds around. And we're not willing to like give up our Starbucks budget to go sponsor a kid in Rwanda. And when we truly trust God in this area of our lives, that it, 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 it's an overflow, an abundance, that we understand that God is going to give us everything. And so we give generously. Paul concludes this letter by sending his greetings and the greetings of the Christians with him in Rome. He says, give my regards to Caesar's household. Now this is probably a reference to those employed by the emperor and maybe even the Roman guards that had become believers as a result of Paul's imprisonment in Philippi. We, we don't know, but that's most likely what that was a reference to. And I love how he ends this letter. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That your spirit is the immaterial facet of your humanity that connects with God. The Bible say that you were spiritually dead before the Holy Spirit came into your life. And grace is the undeserved favor and blessings of God. So this is what Paul is saying, and this is so huge. He says, may the innermost part of your being be filled with an awareness of the undeserved favor and blessings of God. What is he talking about? Well, this whole letter, he ends with this one phrase, and it kind of wraps everything up, that what Paul wants for all of us as believers is to live from the inside out. 
See, so many of us, we come to church and we hear a lesson and we say, ooh, that's convicting. I'm going to make a list of things I need to change. Change this, change this, change this, change this. It's all external. We got our weekly guilt trip. Let's go eat at Shoney's and we'll see you next week. And Paul says, no, 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 you got it wrong. You're going to start loving people when you receive love from God first in the inside of you. And everything you speak and say and do flows from the inside to the outside. You don't wash the outside of the cup. You first deal with what's in the inside of the cup, the darkness of your own heart, the selfishness in your own heart. If you address the selfishness in your own heart, that'll result in generosity. Paul is talking about our souls. Your soul is the personality center of your being. Your soul is where your mind, what you think about, your will, what you want to do, and your emotions operate. That is your soul. And every one of us has a choice every single day. With our souls, we choose either to listen to and obey the lust of our flesh, what feels good, what looks good, what's going to make us seem better than the people around us, or the desires and the leadings of the Holy Spirit. That every day in your soul, in your mind, in your will, in your emotions, you wake up in the morning and you have a choice. Either I'm going to obey the Spirit or I'm going to obey my own flesh. And for many of us, for all of us, our actions first start on the inside. It starts on the inside. Before you speak that hurtful word, do you know where that started? In your heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is God's desire and it's God's design that we live always directed by the born-again nature, which is in step with God's Spirit. That that is the path to life. That is the path to truly flourishing. That when we live according to the Spirit of God, we can trust that God has a better plan for our lives than we do. But here's the problem. Our fallen natures want to rule. We want to be in charge. We want to put people in their place. We want to prove that we're awesome, that we're better than people around us. And so a spiritual battle rages because no man can serve two masters. And when Paul writes about peace, peace cannot happen where there is a war raging on. So is there peace in your soul? Is there peace in your spirit today? Your mind, your will, and emotions, is there truly God's peace? Your spirit, that thing, that part of you that connects with God, is there peace? Because in our relationship with God, the only path to peace is found in absolute surrender. That's it. God loves you too much to let you be in charge because you'll make a mess of it. And when you asked him to be your savior, what you were also surrendering to him was your ability to call the shots. And so here's what I want to ask you as we close this chapter of the Bible. We talk about the grace of Jesus being with our spirit, living from the inside out. Are there things that we need to surrender right here, right now to find peace? Is there a strained or broken relationship in your life, whether that's in your family, in your friendships, in your workplace, in your church, that you know right now as clear as I'm talking to you that God is pointing that out in your heart and saying you need to make peace in that situation. You know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. I have no idea. But God knows and you know. 
Does a step of obedience and surrender mean as you leave this place this morning, you pick up your phone and you call that person and say, hey, we need to talk. We need to talk. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was selfish. I was prideful. I was arrogant. Does it mean that you need to start living open-handedly and trusting God with your money? For a lot of us, we think that when it comes to our money, it's all mine. How much of it do I have to give to God and the people around us? And God looks at us and says, no, you got it all wrong. It's all mine. But I've given this to you for this short period of time to steward. How much of it is right for you to keep for yourself? Because we try to be in charge of it and say, Jesus is my Lord, but I got this little part that I'm not going to let him touch. We've deceived ourselves. He's not Lord of our lives. Maybe for some of us, we need to start trusting God with our greatest worry. There's a situation or there's something that's causing us anxiety and doubt and fear and worry. And we think by holding on to it and worrying about it and feeling anxious about it, maybe we could change something and be in control of it. And maybe if we give it to God, he might start speaking something to us about that situation that we don't like. And so we're not going to surrender to him in prayer. We're just going to hang on to it and worry about it and make it drive us sick. But we feels good in the moment, but we know it's not leading us to peace and joy in the long term. And so today, maybe you need to lay that down at his feet through prayer and through right thinking and say, God, change my mind, change my heart. Here it is. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. I'm going to put it at your feet. And when I feel tempted to pick it up, I'm going to go straight back to you in prayer and say, God, guard my heart and my mind through your peace. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you, God, that what you reveal in us you want to heal in us. We thank you that you're bigger than our failures, that you're bigger than our faults, that you're bigger than any fear, anxiety, or worry that the enemy may be trying to seem bigger than you. We thank you that you're bigger, that you're stronger, that you're greater. And right now, God, we lift up our eyes to where our help comes from, and it's not from ourselves, it's from you. Right now, God, every person in this room this morning that has an obstacle or a challenge or a situation that seems absolutely insurmountable, I pray in the name of Jesus they would receive your peace. They would receive your peace in full measure. Guys, I just feel led to do this. What, it, it, nobody even has to see. If, if you need peace right now from God because there is no peace, would you just as a posture of prayer just hold both your hands out in front of you as a way of saying, God, whatever you want to take out, you can take out. Whatever you want to put in, you could put in. Right where you're seated, you don't, nobody has to know. You just, your eyes are closed. You just hold your hands out and say, God, I want your peace. I want your peace. I invite you to take out parts of my life that are destroying my peace, and I ask you to put in the truth of your word that will bring me to peace. I repent of those things that have led me towards a path of worry and anxiety, and Lord, I ask for your peace. And I want to surrender everything to you right now this morning to receive your peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards my heart and my mind. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving me and being good. God, all, all around this room, in the back, in the sides, in the front, there's communion. This is a symbol of a God who went to the cross for you. You are welcome to take that 
if you've repented of your sins, if you surrendered your life to Christ. There are people to my left and right that would love to pray for you. It doesn't matter what you're facing. It doesn't matter what you're going through. If there is no peace in your life and you need someone to pray with you to find peace, come find one of these guys. But let's respond to the word of God with surrender today. God, we love you. We thank you. Keep your hand on us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.